Hey guys, and welcome to episode 19 of the Bodybuilding Dietitians podcast. Today, we will be doing a typical Q&A with myself and Tiara, and we'll start off by giving a little rundown of what we've been up to, because we have some exciting things coming up in the next few weeks. Yeah, so definitely one of those exciting things is that the time has already come. Season A is has really kicked off. There was already a show this past weekend for um, NBA. ICN shows have already been on in other states. So yeah, we have one of our male physique competitors. His name is Oliver. He will be competing for the first time next weekend on Saturday at the Queensland Rookie Show, which should be so damn exciting. Um, Jack and I just can't wait to be back there backstage as coaches this year. And again, I can't believe it's been a whole year already since we last competed. And then the weekend following, we will have again Oliver competing at the Brisbane Classic. And then I've also got a female fitness and sports model competitor. Her name is Kate. She's looking phenomenal. They both are. And they'll both be competing at the Brisbane Classic. And then the week following, Kate will be competing again at AWNBS. So these next three weeks, we've got some back-to-back shows. But damn, I'm just so excited. Like, I love being at the shows. The atmosphere there is like nothing other. Just being surrounded by others who share the same passions as you and have been on the same journeys. It's just, it's so damn awesome. I honestly recommend everyone should experience just going to a bodybuilding show, even if you're not competing, just going to watch just to experience it at least once in your life because it's it's amazing. I love it. I love being there. Yeah, I think it's definitely a good way to kickstart motivation as well. Yeah, holy crap. Um, And definitely, if you ever consider competing, highly recommend going to a show first before you compete, just to, uh, like Jack said, kickstart that motivation and really see what you're kind of getting yourself into. (laughs) So what have you been up to this week? Um, So this week has been pretty good. Technically, it was mid-semester break for all the uni students, but the way Jack and I's uni semesters laid out this week, it wasn't really a week off uni. We were still working hard on assignments, still had a lot of shifts at the gym. We were on placement at Inspire Health, shadowing sports dietitians there, so that was pretty exciting. But yeah, it's still been a pretty standard week considering that it's technically mid-semester break. (laughs) Yeah, so i basically be the same as Tiara. Um, had my final week of training as well, which is the ninth week of my training block, and I ended that quite well, and we'll both be deloading as well this coming week and getting straight back into things after. So this was your first training block back after your injury, so how do you feel that the last weeks, like the last nine weeks that you've progressed? Yeah, I'm very happy with my strength and I guess hypertrophy progress and this will be the first ever like mesocycle or training block where I'll actually be able to compare over the course of the next however two years or so um, in for my off season or forever really because previously I just haven't been able to look back on previous training cycles and compare oh, what was my squat then versus now just because I was all over the place taking time off training not being able to stick to many movements for a long period of time due to injury so yeah it's very exciting 
Sweet. Oh yeah. And um, so yeah, Jack and I are entering a deload for this next coming week. We ended our mesocycle yesterday. We went down to Surfer's Paradise, trained at World's Gym there, had a nice day, just went to the beach, got some burgers. It was really nice. And yeah, even met a girl there at World's Gym who's um, going to be competing in fitness and sports model as well at the Rookie. So it's just so damn cool going to different gyms around this time of year because you'll always meet other people that you either know through social media or people that you're going to meet at shows. It's, it's really awesome being surrounded um, by these kind of people in the industry. But yeah, sweet. So we will jump into the questions. So the very first one was by Lissy Lifts Things, and she asked, does the way you cook a food affect its nutritional and caloric value, i.e. steamed, oven-baked, no oil? So there are certain foods that when that are different, uncooked versus cooked, but that's not really the question. It's The question is more different types of cooking methods but I thought I'd add in this little bit because it's interesting as well but so for some food such as broccoli if you don't cook broccoli it doesn't activate a molecule or compound called sulforaphane which is I think anti antioxidant properties mm -hmm. so yeah and so that's interesting and there are another other foods like that as well where you have to cook them in order to release the nutritional potential i guess yeah exactly uh, tomatoes are another one so tomatoes have what's called lycopene in them and lycopene again has been shown to be act as an antioxidant in the body might even be cancer protective too but lycopene is only bioavailable when you heat it up so yeah by actually cooking your tomatoes, you are making your lycopene more bioavailable. But on the other hand, some foods are sensitive to heat and their nutrients within them are sensitive to heat. So for example, a food that's high in vitamin C, vitamin C is very sensitive to heat and oxidation as well. So if you were, let's say tomatoes as well have vitamin C too. So when you cook a tomato, Essentially, you are, might degrade some of the vitamin C there, but at the same time, you activate the lycopene. So there's costs and benefits for every single one, but I think the main thing is is that you just should be eating vegetables. Yeah, um, Yeah, I would never deter someone away from eating vegetables, no matter how you cook them. I guess as long as they're not like, you know, like deep fried or something like that. Yeah, I would say as a rule of thumb, the longer or the more harsher you way you cook something the the more nutrients you will be removing so for example if you cook a stir fry and you just flash fry your vegetables at the end um, compared to like baking it in the oven or in a stew then i think um, the latter options will be removing more nutrients yeah and another thing is about um so some nutrients like a lot of b vitamins are water soluble so fruits and vegetables well you'd really only be boiling vegetables i don't know if you're boiling fruits but if you boil <laughs> if you boil vegetables a lot of those b vitamins that are water soluble can leach out into the water so imagine jack what's a vegetable that you would boil and then potato yeah so i guess if you boiled potatoes and some of those water soluble vitamins leached out into the water and then you drained the potatoes you might lose some of the nutrients there but again, just focus on trying to eat vegetables. I thought something interesting was because you said nutritional and caloric value. It won't really change the caloric value. However, 
there are certain vegetables that you definitely should cook just so that you can digest them easier because for example if you were to eat a raw potato or eat raw beans or something like that your body just would not be able to properly break down those foods and digest them so technically you wouldn't absorb as many calories but the amount there it's a good dieting um, hack right jesus yeah but it's a good like gastrointestinal <laughs> upset way to just screw yourself over <laughs> um but yeah and also like you can kind of change the caloric value with some foods too like for example white rice you can cook white rice or any sort of grain and then if you put it in the refrigerator for about a day it the carbohydrates there they turn into resistant starch and not re- all the carbohydrates no not all the car- carbohydrates but a c- component of them does turn into resistant starch and then essentially resistant starch is starch that's resistant to absorption. So it'll pass through the small intestine and go into the large intestine. But then again, resistant starch is fermented by bacteria in our large intestine, which creates short chain fatty acids. And then that actually adds to calories because our body can use those short chain fatty acids as energy. So God knows there, I wouldn't even know a number. But the main thing is focus on eating your vegetables. You can cook them in a variety of ways and just cook them in a way that doesn't cause you any gastrointestinal upset. Sweet. Okay, so next question. All right, so this one was asked by Sam Hodgson, and I'm assuming this one is for Jack. (laughs) Um, So it said, what's made you stay natural all this time? And have you considered not being and why? So I'm going to let you take the floor. So to break this down, when he says natural all this time, well, Tierra and I are actually still both only 21, which we don't really advert, advert as much, but... Basically only just ended puberty, man. <laughs> so I have been training for a while. So I think this is my seventh year of training. Probably been training seriously since 2016. So yeah. 16, so fourth year of like proper bodybuilding, tracking everything, diet, all that sort of stuff. I'm definitely not anti the use of steroids, but I definitely am pro natural bodybuilding. So there are a number of people that Tara and I both look up to, such as Mike Isretail and John Meadows, who are both very senior and influential people in the fitness industry and nutrition industry as well but it doesn't really fit in with my goals and what do I want to want to achieve. And yeah, so I think I definitely have a lot more potential to gain muscle naturally. And even in the future, when I do ever reach my natural potential, then I will probably just stay natural then as well. Because yeah, I'm, as I said, just pro natural bodybuilding. So yeah, exactly. And there's a lot of people that natural pro bodybuilders that Jack and I both look up to, especially here in Queensland and in Australia, such as Alan Mayo and Damon Forrest and Brandon Kempter, and their physiques are just phenomenal. And they are fantastic examples of how far you can really take a physique. And genetics aside, you know, just damn hard work if you actually put in the work and you're smart and you're strategic and you're consistent over not just years but decades you can absolutely transform yourself drug free 
Yeah, and as Tira said, there are a lot of people who are testament to that. Even people who are 24, 25 year, years old, they have phenomenal physiques and they're natural athletes. So, yeah, there's still a long way for me to go. Mm-hmm. All right, so I guess this question also ties in nicely with general muscle or Lawrence's question. And it says, do you ever see yourself coaching enhanced physique competitors in the future? Yes. <laughs> is a short answer and mainly because I think that I don't have a good understanding of anabolics or steroids I probably have a very basic understanding but in essence the foundations really do apply across enhanced and natural athletes for example like training hard adequate programming nutrition and then I guess there are other a few little things that would tie in around the drug use. And if I ever had a client, I would probably do more research, but I would definitely make it clear with them that I would be handling their nutrition and their training and everything else that would normally go along with a natural athlete. And if they wanted any assistance with their use of medication then or drugs, um, they would have to find another coach for that side of things. Yeah, exactly. And But I think becoming educated in that area of endocrinology and biochemistry um, more in relation to drugs, I just think it's fascinating. I think it's so interesting and it's certainly something that I want to delve into more just to understand what's really going on there because, yeah, I think that it's so interesting. But again, I just... I have absolutely nothing against anyone who is enhanced because the principles are the exact same. You just have to work just as hard. And nothing actually bothers me more than when someone who, Jesus, someone who usually doesn't probably even exercise, but they'll look at a like pro bodybuilder. And yes, of course they are enhanced. They're taking drugs, but they'll look at them and they'll say, I could do that with steroids. And you just look at them and you're like, no, you couldn't. You have no idea what's gone into that. You have no idea how consistent they've been over, you know, 10, 20, 30 years and the sacrifices they've made and how much they love this sport. So you can't disregard that at all. Drugs, yes, they give you an advantage, but you just have to work just as damn hard. So... Yeah, that's just my little take on it. Um, I absolutely respect and admire anyone in this sport because it is a 24-7 job and you have to be passionate and you have to love it and you have to work so damn hard no matter who you are, natural or enhanced. But yeah, I would love to work with enhanced athletes, to be honest. It'd be so interesting. I'd love to work with anyone that is passionate and dedicated to bodybuilding. So moving on to the next question, how did your, so this is asked by Corinne and the question is, how did your family and friends react to you deciding to compete? Hmm. So my family was very supportive. Uh, my dad has, you know, been into weightlifting his entire life. <laughs> he actually got me into benching when I was like 12 years old, which is pretty cool. Um, but yeah, I love my dad, but yeah, he has got me exercising my entire life. I was gymming since I was like in grade five and Jack and I didn't just roll off the street, you know, and say like, oh, we want to do a show, you know, like 12 weeks out or something. We've been living this lifestyle since 
Well, I know I've been living this lifestyle since like 2015 for sure. So our family was already so used to it. You know, they've become accustomed to, we all eat dinner together, but Jack and I make our own meals to fit our macros. And, you know, they're used to us going off and training every day. Or, you know, if we can't make like an event at a certain time, they understand because we're training or they understand our rest days. They just, and they support us. And our family was at both of our shows and... When you say our family, you our family. Oh, yes, we do we, not share the same family. No, we're not related. <laughs> oh gosh, um, our separate families are both very supportive. <laughs> um, nothing like that going on here. Um, yeah, they 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 understand us because we've been practicing this and we've been living this lifestyle for years. And yeah, if if any of you listening and your families aren't or family isn't supportive of what you're doing then I think what helped for me is just explaining to my family that bodybuilding in essence is still in my opinion it's a sport and just look at any other high caliber athlete who is doing a sport that's doing a sport they have coaches they have support teams they have to go on diets they have training multiple times a week and etc so why should you be any different as a bodybuilder so yeah exactly and i because a lot of families will see you go through a prep you know and they might not understand at that time they might not understand why you have to weigh your broccoli you know and all this certain stuff but get them i highly encourage you to get them to come to your show because like just seeing the look on their face i remember seeing the look on jack's parents face when jack was up on stage and i will never forget it because they finally understood what jack had been working so hard towards and they were so proud and i think that really cements to them and it will most likely hopefully cement to your family too and your loved ones just why you do this and why you go through the suffering you know during a prep so that you can get up on there on stage and shine and they will most likely be so proud of you and they really will understand yeah i remember even throughout my prep uh, even people who i had round to the house who were like family friends they were like like i could see they were wondering a bit why the hell i was doing this and especially on those days as a nat- natural athlete where you look really flat, you look like a normal person in clothes. And then the night before the show, you get the tan. And then on the show day, when you're full of carbs, you look like a completely different person. Mm-hmm. And yeah, same with Tierra as well. Like it's sort of everyone just understands what all the hard work has been for. Yeah. So next question is, is there such thing as eating too little to lose weight or get lean? And this was asked by Mona. Okay, so this has kind of been debunked. You'll, you will sometimes hear people say this, that, oh, maybe I'm eating too little and that's why I'm not losing weight. So maybe I need to eat more food. But this, has, this is definitely not true. If you are in a caloric deficit and the Minnesota starvation study like, was great at proving this, you will continue to lose weight if you are in a caloric deficit. There is no such thing as starvation mode. There certainly is a thing known as metabolic adaptation or adaptive thermogenesis, where your body just becomes more efficient at utilizing calories and burning less calories at rest. 
which most likely if you want to keep losing weight, then you have to either further increase your energy expenditure or further decrease your calories. But if you are eating in a caloric deficit, you will continue to lose weight regardless. Yeah, I have a slightly different opinion on this one. I think there are sort of two answers to this. So there's the answer that Tierra gave that, yes, if you're in an energy deficit, you will lose weight. However, if like us being dietitians, we've come up with a very unique name. It's called a very low energy diet. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But that's actually the proper term for that in clinical sense. And if you do stay on this for too long, and it does get recommended to obesity patients, um, they usually get like what, three or four drinks a day. It's I've... literally like 800 calories a day for mm. people who are well over 100 kilograms. Yeah, so not really applicable to the average person. or Well, maybe it is because two-thirds of Australia is overweight or obese. But, mm-hmm. but the, yeah, the reality is, is that um, I think there is... Uh, such thing as going too lower calories because you will have too much metabolic adaptation. You will, for like the um, average person's name, like you will destroy your metabolism in a sense because you are going too low. And the lower you go, the harder it is to fit in um, high nutritional dense foods such as fruits, vegetables, whole grains. Because like say if you're on 800 calories a day, like how much whole grains are you realistically going to be able to fit in on that amount of food? Not much. So it's it's really a trade-off there between weight loss versus nutritional quality and for some people losing weight will be more important than their nutritional quality because their weight is hindering their health Mm -hmm. yeah so it definitely depends on the circumstance and who you are there yeah this also tracks well into another question which is cutting slowly versus cutting more drastically and how much to decide by how much (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Um, Very much is there. Um, But yeah, so Jack and I have certainly covered this in depth um, in our past episodes, you know, talking about if you're cutting drastically, that's usually known as a mini cut. But if you're a physique athlete, yeah, if if you're you're a a normal person, then yeah, if you're a normal person and you're going to Bali in like four weeks and you're trying to shed 10 pounds or something, maybe that's a normal like a circumstance you usually hear people say on social media or among your friends groups so that's where you'd certainly try to be cutting drastically um or cutting more slowly and taking a more traditional approach and so what give some numbers here jack some numbers <laughs> some yeah <laughs> some figures <laughs> okay so yeah the usual recommendations for weight loss are between um 0.5 to 1 percent of your body weight each week so I would really only recommend a, for someone who isn't a physique athlete, I probably wouldn't recommend a drastic cut because it's not sustainable and the evidence just says you will gain it back. Mm-hmm. So and majority of it is really just going to be water and glycogen too. So it's not mm-hmm. actual tissue weight. Yeah. It's like going on the keto diet, all the, all the weight loss you'll get from that. Well, not all, but most of it will be glycogen, water. And then maybe after a couple of weeks, you will get um, actual fat loss. Mm -hmm. And then as soon as you go off the keto, you'll gain it back due to like so much restriction. Well, that's, yeah, that's at least what the evidence says. And from what we've seen in practical sense as well, but anyway, getting sidetracked, I would, yeah, we'd both recommend a more slower approach for people who are of a general population and for physique athletes, if you're at the peak of your off season, a mini cut can be useful to recomp and get to a lower body fat before bulking again. 
but yeah and then a longer cut obviously for something like a contest preparation where you have to drop a significant amount of body fat yeah exactly so generally 0.5 to 1% of your body weight per week for a slower cut. And you can usually achieve that by finding out your maintenance calories. And then if you usually want to aim for around half a percent, drop your calories by around 500 below maintenance. If you drop, want to drop it closer to 1%, drop them by about a thousand calories below maintenance. But again, trying there to keep protein anywhere between like 1.6 to 2.4 grams per kilogram. Try to prioritize carbohydrates, especially around your training and consuming enough fats, especially essential fatty acids like omega-3 to support health. But yeah, so that's a more depending on what type of approach you want to take. But we've certainly covered mini cuts in past episodes. So I'd probably just recommend you guys go back to those episodes. It should say mini cut in the um, headline topic. Yeah, and this also leads onto yet another question, which is similar, which we have covered before, but we'll cover again briefly. What is the best way to calculate calories and macros, both for yourself and others? So just briefly for the calories, there are lots of um, equations online and stuff like that, which will give you a very brief or um, general overview of what your calorie intake is. It'll give you a good ballpark figure. And once you have that, like just type in um, calorie calculator and they all use very similar equations. And once you have that figure, you start eating that amount of food per day, tracking it using an app such as MyFitnessPal, then tracking your corresponding body weight increase or decrease. So if you're trying to gain weight and you're losing weight, then obviously you increase the amount of calories you're eating slightly. And yeah, it sounds like a bit of work, but that's in reality is probably one of the easier ways to do it. Yeah, exactly. But at the same time, if you have a goal to lose weight or gain weight and you want to do it in the most accurate way possible, you need to put in a little bit of effort and you need to track. You just can't get around that. Yeah. And in terms of the macros, um, that's kind of difficult because everyone has different goals. And for example, Tara and I, we both follow a very high carbohydrate diet relatively low fat and high protein but in order to the current recommendations by dietitians is around 20 to 35 percent of your energy intake should be coming from fat 15 to 25 percent from protein and 45 to 65 percent from carbohydrate so yeah you can do the math on that or yeah feel free to ask us for any help Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, uh, if you wanted to put those into terms of grams, so yeah, again, sticking protein somewhere between 1.6 to 2.4 grams per kilogram of body weight. Fat, uh, I'd say around one gram per kilogram is pretty good. And then again, the remainder of your calories just coming from carbohydrates. Yeah. And yeah, that would I would say that would be more of like a lower fat, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. Depending Yeah, on who you are. So moving on again. So this one, it says, um, this was asked by Sarah Schmidt. So it says, taking sugar-free calorie drinks such as sparkling water or brands like Crystal Light in the last four weeks of prep, will it negatively affect your body? So yeah, a lot of competitors do cut out artificial sweeteners in the last few weeks of prep or just peak week. And I guess their reasoning behind it is that some people don't respond 
that well to things like sugar alcohols or artificial sweeteners and cause a little bit of bloating maybe. Yeah, exactly. But I guess some people take the approach that during those earlier weeks of prep, they're kind of willing to put up with that kind of thing. So they don't mind if they're, um, you know, if they can eat their protein bars or a lot of sugar, uh, sugar-free drinks and have a bit of an upset stomach as long as they can still enjoy those foods. And then some people do take the approach of in those final weeks of prep, cutting them out just so that they feel better. And yeah, the only reason I think you should cut them out is if you are not responding well to them. Like for Tierra and I, we both still had protein powder, which is um, sugar free and uses artificial sweeteners. I think it's sucralose. And we both respond well to that. We don't have any issues, so there's no reason to cut it out. Yeah, we were still eating that all the days up leading to our prep. I was still having artificial sweeteners in my coffee the morning of prep because they just didn't cause me any issues. But again, this is a highly individual question. So if things are causing you gastrointestinal distress, I would recommend trying to avoid them just so that, one, you feel better, but also... Your physique does matter and like how your core looks on stage really does matter. And if you feel like it's making you hold a bit more water, your stomach is a bit distended, then yeah, maybe you can take an approach of trying to just reduce those or cut them out in the midterm. Yeah, I agree completely. And moving on to another question, best meal prep recipes for speed and calories. Mm, Speed and calories. (laughs) So obviously this would be for an individual maybe who is time poor and also wants relatively high calorie options as well. So gaining weight. So the best advice I have for this and without having to explain each meal prep recipe would actually be to go onto Instagram hashtags and search easy meal prep or meal prep ideas, anything like that, high calorie meal prep. And then literally you'll get like so many like posts of people posting their meal prep and yeah and usually if someone posts a meal prep there is going to be all right Mm -hmm. i hope yeah (laughs) so that would be my best option um, or recommendation and my second one would be literally just dividing a meal or a meal idea into three components your carbs protein and fat and then just choosing a food source that's relatively high in energy and easy to, to cook so for example carbs would might be pasta fat you could use olive oil cheese Mm-hmm. anything like that avocado nuts mm. maybe not with pasta <laughs> <laughs> i don't know i've tasted some pretty damn good pasta with avocado and nuts yeah okay mm-hmm. um and then the protein the protein could fit into the fat as well like for example a uh, fattier source of fish or a... some some steak there some lamb mm. or like chicken with the skin on yeah or you could go leaner protein options such, such as chicken breast chicken thigh slightly more fatty but and leaner sources of fish, you get the idea. So I think that's that's something that I use kind of often or just comes naturally to both of us now, so. Yeah, exactly. And just uh, like a lot of people do, they dedicate a few hours um, during the week to meal prep and they'll cook uh, like these things. So for example, they'll do a huge bake of chicken breasts and then they'll do a huge pot of rice and then they'll also have some vegetables and yeah, a big handful of nuts or something. And then they lay out all their containers on the counter. And once those foods are cooked, they just evenly divide them into the containers and then put them in the fridge or put them in the freezer. And as long as you don't mind eating the same foods, you know, each day, then that's a very easy way to do it. And then 
every day after that, you can just grab it and go. So super convenient. But again, if you have a goal, you just can't get around it. You are going to have to dedicate a little bit of time to it. Or if you want it to be super speedy, I recommend you that you do a jack and you get yourself a Nutribullet and you throw in a whole bunch of ingredients, blend that bitch, and literally down it in like three seconds. Jack's like freaking drinking cake batter most days. Well, not most days, but uh, I've seen... I think we should disclaim cake batter and say... Health... Um, <laughs> health batter. High, highly nutritious health batter. <laughs> <laughs> all right <laughs> yeah if you don't care about the taste too well it doesn't even taste bad but yeah there's berries in there protein powder yeah it is it's just nutrition like i guess that's what the nutri bullet advertisements say they like mm. you still get to get all the nutrients because you're not removing anything yes so. exactly when jack and i first started dating i was like please can you please throw a kale leaf in there <laughs> and he did it sometimes and i was so proud <laughs> Yeah, Tara used to be obsessed with kale. But... Part of me is still obsessed with kale. My my blood runs with kale. <laughs> All right, so this next question is by NVR, and it says, is taking a multivitamin necessary if you eat a balanced diet? Well, we can re- respond to this quickly. Yeah, of course. I think she kind of answered her own question. Yeah, so it's no. Yeah, so exactly. Unless if you're eating a well-balanced diet and you know that you aren't devoid of any nutrients in your diet, then there really isn't necessarily a need to take a multivitamin. At the same time, multivitamins actually, because they contain so many different nutrients, sometimes those nutrients actually compete for absorption. So if anyone studied like um, chemistry or biochemistry, you know that compounds with a two plus, so things like zinc, calcium, magnesium, because these all have a two plus, they actually compete for absorption with one another. So if you are consuming them all in the same tablet, sometimes you actually won't absorb um, the exact amount of all of those that's actually written in the multivitamin. I think that you should really only be supplementing one if you are seeing an accredited dietitian and they have identified that yes, you may be nutrient deficient in a certain vitamin. This usually comes to more people who are eating like plant-based diets, so more things like calcium and iron and B12, then, then yes, there could be a reason why you may need to supplement, but just mm, I would, popping I would, pills. Yeah, I would very rarely recommend for a multivitamin. And as Tierra said, probably more individual um, vitamins such as like folate, if moms might need an extra boost of folate during pregnancies, or maybe iron for um, female athletes, or yes, things like that. But rarely would I say you need a multivitamin if you're eating a balanced diet. It doesn't make sense. So mm-hmm. Exactly. So next question. So we've covered again this one on previous episodes, but I think it's one that people are interested in. So thoughts on cheat meals and days. And this is by Cameron McCulloch. So what are your thoughts? So just to clarify the terminology, my interpretation of cheat meals and days is where you just go, it's not scheduled. You just go all out eating whatever you want. And then there are a couple of other terms as well. So refeed days is more a very scheduled um, amount of food that fits in with your diet and your training needs. 
And then a high day is similar to a refeed day as well. So, and then a diet break is a period of time, for example, a week or two at maintenance calories. So again, that's a very specific amount of food, unlike cheap meals and days. So you just have to look at your goals. And for example, if you're a physique competitor doing a, a diet for the stage, and you're looking at doing a cheap meal and day, does it really fit in with your weight loss goals and your training goals? So one, if you're eating whatever you want for a full day, it's not going to fit in with your diet because you're likely going to go well over your um, daily and weekly calories. And sure, it might give you a little boost in training the next day or two and fill you out with glycogen, but it will set you back lots of time. And this is um, compared to a refeed day where you, again, fill out with glycogen, but you don't go overboard. You have a good boost in training that day and maybe the next day as well. You've seen yourself with a pump and full of carbs as well. And then you go back down into a deficit again and continue losing weight and you don't forestall any future progress. And just- I think and macronutrient wise there, I think on cheat days and cheat meals, People really go high fat most of the time, but the difference there between a refeed is a refeed is very strategic and you predominantly just get the extra calories from carbohydrates, like Jack said, so that you can fill out with glycogen and really fuel training performance. Because when you are, especially in a comp prep and an energy deficit, if you're eating a very high amount of fat, your body is very sensitive and very good at storing extra body fat because it wants extra body fat at that point. Mm. And yeah, Tara and I are definitely advocates for high days or refeed days during a prep. And both of our competitors and both of us have responded very well to it. But we would never like a, a cheat or a cheat meal or a cheat day is definitely something for your final competition where you can go out and enjoy yourself. Yeah, exactly. And to be honest, I don't really like the the name cheat meal or cheat day. I don't really like that cheat word. If anything, I think it should just be called like an untracked meal or God damn, maybe it can just be a freaking meal. Like if you go out to lunch with your family, you don't have to have the mentality of, oh, I'm cheating on my diet or I'm cheating on something. You can just eat a meal with your family like and just enjoy that. So I really like more the term untracked, which means that you just you look at a menu and you pick what you want and you eat it and you enjoy time with whoever the heck you're with. But you don't have to go overboard and you don't have to cheat on yourself. and You don't have to cheat on anything. I think that's a much healthier way to look at it because when people label it as a cheat meal or a cheat day, they're almost more inclined because they get into that all or nothing mentality and some people just go wild. Hmm. Yeah, but I also think that the word cheat meal or day is also ingrained in bodybuilding culture. So I know, we can't get away from it, but yeah. yeah. That's going down a different path. Anyway. <laughs> so next question is from Lloyd and this is, I can't feel the target muscle during compounds should I reduce the weight and rebuild? Hmm. So this is actually an interesting question. And obviously we're not exercise physiologists, we're dietitians, but we'll give our interpretation of it. And my thoughts are that if you're doing a squat and you can't feel your quads, then what else, what are you feeling? Like I'm a bit- Pain. (laughs) I feel my heart during squats. (laughs) So I think if your technique is good, and you're 
I think if your form and technique is good and you videoed yourself and you're and you're okay with your technique then and I would be a little bit surprised if you're not feeling say your quads and your glutes during a squat but so that's probably one of the first approaches to take if you aren't feeling a target muscle I would get like someone who is accredited like an exercise physiologist or get your coach to actually take a good look at how you're performing the exercise because they'll probably, if you're not feeling the muscle, they'll probably be able to pick it up because your form might, might not be adequate. For example, maybe you're not hitting depth on squats or maybe your back is rounding a lot or maybe your knees are caving in or something like that or you're coming up on your toes. Something is happening there that they can pinpoint and be like, okay, what we're going to do is reduce the weight. We're going to focus on these cues and then they're going to get you to perform a squat with good form and then reassess. Did you feel your quads there? And yeah, you can basically do this with any exercise. So for example, bench, if someone isn't coming, like they're only going halfway down, not even in close to their chest with the bar and they're saying, oh, I can't feel my chest during bench, reduce the weight a little bit get them to do a full range of motion and really focus on trying to feel their chest and then reassess and ask them, did you feel your pecs there? Yeah, and if you still aren't feeling the target muscle, then if your goal is bodybuilding, not powerlifting, then there's no reason why you can't sub out that compound for something similar. So for example, front squats instead of back squats or hack squat instead of front squats. Mm, or something like a leg press or like a che- like a cable chest fly or something. Or- well, but yeah, you get the idea just because overall your goal is muscle gain, not st- like strength gain is of course important, but you can still progress in strength across something like a hack squat or a front squat, which is what the important thing. So yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really going to be different for everyone. So just try to find an exercise that you can perform with good form, feel the target muscle, and you can definitely progressively overload with that. Like some girls, you know, might feel their glutes during a glute kickback, but you have to say, you know, can you progressively overload with a glute kickback? Because you'll probably have to add in some other exercises there. But again, that's a different topic. So moving to our last couple of questions now. And... This is asked by Dan Martins. What are the best ways to avoid overeating late night snacking? Asking for a friend. (laughs) So I think this, again, is very individual. Depends what your goals are. But what would be some of your tips, Tiara? Okay, so best way to avoid overeating and late night snacking. So what I would... you, this is really clearly you um, may have gotten into this type of routine. So again, you're going to have to try to break this routine. So for example, if you're eating a lot late at night, perhaps trying to shift more of your calories to more earlier in the day so that you're more satiated during the day and you won't be so hungry at night. Again, there's not there's nothing terribly wrong with eating late at night if you're still within your calorie and macronutrient goals. 
But yeah, if you feel like you are very ravenous at night and you are just eating a lot of food and you're going over your calorie goals and this is impacting on a body, your body composition and your health goals in a way that you wouldn't like, then yes, I would look at trying to look at your day in total and um, looking at your routine and trying to shift more of your calories towards earlier in the day so you feel more satiated. Also, if you still like to eat something at night, try to eat something that may be a little bit more satiating. So something like um, a slow digesting protein. So you could eat like a nice piece of meat at dinner with uh, or like some yogurt. Yogurt I find is very satiating because of the casein in there. Um, and you can just have a mixed meal if you want, you know, like a nice steak with um, some sort of whole grain carbohydrate source and some vegetables that's going to digest very slowly, keep you satiated at night, or a little snack of some high protein yogurt with a few nuts or a bit of oats. You can really eat anything at night, but just try to find something that's satiating and so that you feel a little bit less ravenous. What would you say? Yeah, I would pretty much agree, but I think it should be tailored more to the person. Yeah, of course, I don't know, so. Mm. And so, yeah, for example, I would, like for me, I would do maybe intermittent fasting in the morning and then I would eat the majority of my calories in the evening. Or for example, I would eat like a, there's no reason why, if you're really hungry, just eat salad, like eat a two kilo salad or something. Just eat salad, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, or like, yeah, try, utilize some, um, like this would be an instance I would recommend like a diet soda or something. Um, so instead of eating something with energy, um, try an energy-free option. Or something that's really filling but lower calorie like... Like salad. Na- like salad. <laughs> Jack loves salad. Um, or nice cream. Get a food processor, get a bunch of frozen berries and a scoop or two of protein and some ice. Blend that up. You will have a humongous just food processor full of nice cream pick the smallest spoon in your house and just enjoy it man that's what that was jack and i in prep salad and nice cream (laughs) (laughs) and beans and beans lots of beans (laughs) and yeah lots of fiber but yeah i would it's just a way of you have to figure out whether it's uh, like a physiological response like if it's actual hunger or if it's more psychological like tending to snack in that time or if you're really bored and just choosing the correct intervention strategy that works for you and yeah feel free to as always any listener getting in contact with us for any assistance yeah for sure all right so i think we have one more question so cody is asking you have you ever installed a window I have not. Have you ever installed a window? Just an anabolic window, Ben. Oh, okay. <laughs> but he's also he Cody also asked me um, how I'm finding squat shoes because I used them for the first time on Friday, and yeah, they felt really good. Usually, I go bare feet, which I'm not allowed to in my gym. So against the rules. <laughs> and yeah, I found them a lot more stable than even barefoot. Um, because using trainers is definitely a no-no for me feels really bad but I will definitely be buying a pair of squat shoes yeah yeah for sure I've I definitely know with my long femurs squat shoes have really helped me especially in front squats they just really help front squats will already help you stay upright but I just I love my squat shoes too just having that slight heel elevation can really make a difference Mm, and yeah especially for front squats for me and hip thrust and RDLs, it, it just felt really on point. So, yeah. Nice. 
All right, sweet. So those are all the listener questions. We had heaps this week. Thanks so much for um, anyone who sent any through. Now we will end the podcast on our final question. So I'm going to ask Jack this first this week. So Jack, one interesting thing that you learned this week. So it's not really a fact. It's more of like an understanding or thought process this week. And that's, I was talking to a fair few people at the gym and overall, I just got the impression that they think muscle gain is a very quick process. So for example, I was talking to someone and we were looking at like a photo on Instagram, I think of this, of this guy who was like 110 kilos and shredded and stuff like that, (laughs) as you do. Um, and he was like, oh yeah, well, like, I, can't you just do that in like a couple of years or something? And he was talking to me because he knew I was, um, he, I compete and, and I was, I sort of, yeah, I can't remember exactly what I said, but I think I just explained to him that as a natural athlete, like you just can't do that. And it's not realistic to think that you can gain 20 kilos of muscle in a couple of years. Yeah, I think a lot of people, especially those that aren't involved in the health and fitness industry, more general population, they are under the impression that muscle gain is something that you can just, yeah, it's so easy. Like, especially working at the gym, Jack and I have done so many consultations with people. And like one of the first things they say is they're like, I don't want to get too muscly. Like they almost freak out, like as if they lift like, you know, a five kilogram dumbbell, like boom, they're just going to explode. (laughs) And I just have to like put my hands up and be like, it's okay. You won't get too muscly. Like you don't understand how many years and how much food and how many weights you'd actually have to lift to even look a quarter of whatever image that you have in your mind. So some people, yeah, are definitely under the impression that it's something that can just happen overnight. And it almost, it's almost kind of insulting because they, it's like something that, I don't know, I guess people who aren't involved in this industry, they think like of muscly, like they instantly think of some bodybuilder image that they saw on Google once. And they're like, that's, that's their tie-in with lifting weights and they think that that's exactly what happens like you just go from a to b within like overnight or within a week yeah Mm, it actually reminds me a little bit of the movie shazam which (laughs) shazam (laughs) (laughs) boom (laughs) next minute jack is ronnie coleman (laughs) if only it was that easy i'm like i sit there in the console and i'm like i wish man i wish (laughs) Yeah, and the this is this is uh, yeah. The funny thing is, is during prep, like when I would have consults with people, they would say like, "Yeah, I would be pretty happy with like your body." <laughs> That's like a stagger to the heart. <laughs> yeah, like obviously, at the end of the day, we're both very understanding, and we we know why people say that sort of stuff. It's just. It's a little bit funny and it can be a little bit hurtful as well sometimes, but... Yeah, literally, I had this guy come into the gym once and he was, um, like, confused about which membership he would buy. And I asked him about his goals, you know, and he, he wanted to, you know, get big and get really muscly. And he was like, you know, do I need the one-week membership or the three-month membership? And I just looked at him, honestly, and I'm like, dude, it's going to take you 10 years. And he was just gobsmacked he was like what like he had this idea that it's like you lift weights you get really big and then it's just something that you have for the rest of your life 
And like, I just tried to explain this to him, but he didn't want to listen. And a few days later, I saw him walking around with another personal trainer, probably trying to get another answer. (laughs) But yeah, I think there's just probably some misunderstanding in that area. Um, but yeah, I guess I'll just finish. One thing that I learned this week is I, for Inspire Health, the sports dietetics company we're working with at the moment, I'm currently making a evidence-based supplement resource for them so that they can prescribe, um, safe ergogenic aids or safe sports supplements to elite athletes, um, that have been tested to not contain any banned substances because they're literally dealing with athletes on like the elite Olympic level and they they just do not want to take the risk, you know, going into your standard nutrition warehouse, pulling any pre-workout or creatine off the shelf and taking it and having there even be a chance that there could be a banned substance in there that's not on the WADA approved list. Or if no one knows what WADA is, that is World Anti-Doping Agency. Anyway, because I'm making this resource, it turns out that there are actually not many supplements out there at all that are actually tested and approved for banned substances. So ways to actually know if a subst- uh, if a supplement is approved is if it has either an informed sport or a HASTA rating. So you can just look on the product and see if it has either informed sport or HASTA. So these are two independent companies that test different products and for banned substances and then approve them. And it really turns out there are not many supplement companies that go to this extent. And even if you buy a supplement, you know, and it says ingredients, just creatine, and as we know, creatine is a legal legal ergogenic aid, that still doesn't mean that it's been tested for banned substances. So there's very few supplement companies out there. The ones that are the most common are things like VPA, Musashi, Body Science, Bulk Nutrients, among a few others. But yeah, damn, there really aren't that many. So um, if especially if you are an elite athlete, really make sure that whatever supplements you are taking, they either have an informed sport or HASTA approval. Sweet. All right. So guys, that is the end of our 19th episode. We are almost up to 20, which is pretty damn cool. Thank you so much again for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a screenshot, post it to your Instagram stories, tag the bodybuilding dietitians, tag Jack, tag myself, and we will catch you next week. Catch you guys. 